0: Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode we have Jared Gainer. Jared is currently a pitching coach in the Minnesota Twins organization. I've known Jared for several years now and he does an awesome job with with his pitchers even just dating back to a few years ago when I was coaching with him in a, in a college summer league. So if you're someone who's into pitching coaches pitchers or as a pitcher themselves this is going to be a really good episode to to stick around and listen to because jared is able to take complex information and break it down very very simply so you can able to understand it and take that information and apply it to your own game so we go over different drills in this episode we go over how to attack hitters um, what you should be looking for when it comes to spin spin rate um why your fastball is such an important piece to pitch tunneling and what pitches should be your secondary pitch. This is really, really good stuff. Um, like I said before, Jared D- Jared does a really awesome job with all of his pitchers, and um, you're going to be able to see that in this episode. So uh, if you're interested in doing some remote training with Jared, um, one of the things that I did is I put his uh, information on the show notes page. But if you Why don't you just straight-up email him, even without looking at the show notes page. You can email him at info at gainerstrength-pitching.com. So I'll put that information in the show notes. He uh, currently is doing remote training for pitchers all over the country. And I believe he's only taking, I think he told me, 20 or 25 pitchers total, and then he's shutting it off. So make sure to get on that if you want more information on Jared, Um, like I said earlier, Check the show notes page. I'll have all of his uh, uh, links for contact information. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is Jared Gaynor. All right, we are now live with Jared Gaynor. Um, Jared, thanks for coming on today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Pat. What is this, my third or fourth time now? I think it's like your fifth or sixth time, man. Fifth or sixth, okay, I lost track. Yeah, I think you came on three times and one like 3 weeks one that one summer
1: yeah that was a fun summer it's crazy to think that that was 2 years ago we were in lima
0: it's, it's sometimes it's, it seems longer and sometimes shorter um uh that was that was a lot of fun though we had a good setup um we were coaching the lima locos
1: yeah it was we had a lot of freedom to to train those guys how we wanted and it was cool that we had a weight room and you know, we were able to get creative with those guys. So that was definitely an experience um, I'm really thankful for. And that was what allowed us to connect and grow our friendship.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. So what I mean, what have you been up to? I know, you're back home, you're you live in Arizona in the off season. you near Cave Creek, right?
1: Yeah, well, that's where I was raised. Um, I live in Scottsdale now. It's only about 15 minutes north of Cave Creek. But it's great out here, uh, it's nice and hot, that's for sure right now. I'm not used to being here during the summers anymore, but I've been staying busy, uh, doing stuff for the twins still, um, and then growing my my online company as well. But, you know, trying to make the most of this time and you know, do some continued education stuff, um, spending time with my fiance and family, and uh, really just trying to take advantage of this time um, all around.
0: And I know um, we had Luke Haggerty on the show. I think actually you introduced me to Luke and I've seen some of your videos online where it's, you're still, you're still throwing, like you're still experimenting with some pitch pitch design or just throwing in general. Um, Why, why are you still throwing as a coach?
1: Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I actually had a post on Instagram about this. I think it was yesterday or two days ago, but really the the main reason I keep throwing is because I want to continue to have the mindset of a player and understand you know, how hard this game is and how hard it is to make adjustments. You know, I I think the further out you get from playing, um, it can get really easy to forget just how hard this game was. And, you know, I know when I was playing, I went through a lot of challenges. and I worked really hard, but it wasn't easy to make progress all the time. So I like to just experiment with different drills and, you know, different things I'm going to have my players do. I want to make sure that I have a good understanding of it. And for me to understand something, I have to actually do it. And uh, it's just uh, been a fun process to continue to do that, and the players love it too. Like last uh, last season out in Cedar Rapids uh, with the Twins, me and the other pitching coach even had a little velo competition at one point during the year. And the you know the players love that; it's fun for them. And um, and truthfully, just throwing's fun. So I think it's going to be one of those things I continue to do as the years go on, as long as my body will allow me
0: to. So are you, you're doing weighted balls and all that stuff to keep your arm in shape.
1: Yeah, you know, those are a lot of the drills that, you know, I implement and teach with guys is, you know, plyo ball drills. And so I'm always trying to think of new drills and, you know, new feels I can do for guys, whether it's working on an arm action drill or working on, you know, their back leg, lead leg, whatever it might be. I'm always trying to get creative and, and try to come up with new ideas or even different versions of already existing drills.
0: What, what are your thoughts on pivot pickoffs? I've messed around with them a little bit. Uh, I'm definitely really, really tight in my back and it, I have trouble actually even pulling that off, but it, it does feel a little bit better once I can get it down. And I know from what I've heard, it's supposed to like clean up your arm action. What, what do you think about them? Are you, are you a fan of the pivot pickoffs or what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I love the pivot pickoffs. Uh, you know, when I was playing, I was doing them. So I, I started doing them back in 2015. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that it's good for, um, you know, one of the main ones like you just mentioned is arm action, right? Um, and, you know, just to explain that a little bit more, like when we say it works on arm action, I got the very general statement. But what it allows for me and what I try to focus on when I'm teaching it is to focus on not necessarily getting the arm action shorter, but really just making it efficient. And what that means for me is having their arm up on time and getting their hand inside 90 degrees and that, that's really one of the main things because you'll see a lot of kids when they're doing the drill they'll do what's called forearm fly out where you know their hand will be outside um, of their elbow. so we're doing a zoom card right now so i can kind of show you but this would be a 90 90 degrees position so there's a 90 degree angle here 90 degree angle straight up so the further my hand gets outside of that i'm decreasing that angle so it's going below 90 degrees when i say inside 90 the hand is getting closer to the shoulder so when I get to my, my foot plant position and I start to go into layback, I want that hand to be inside 90 degrees. So that's one of the focuses I put into the pivot pickoffs with the arm action. Then the other thing is the glove side. So you hear the word glove side disconnection. I think driveline kind of came up with that term. And really what that is, is it's allowing your glove side to accelerate your throwing arm through. So it's not moving as one piece. We don't want our throwing arm moving at the same time that our glove arm is driving down. We want the glove arm to be a little bit ahead of the throwing arm to allow our torso to rotate faster. So those are really two of the main parts. Um, you know, there's, there's some separation type things you can focus on with it, but the main thing is the arm action being the focus.
0: And you do that with weighted, with a weighted ball?
1: Yeah, so that will be one of the heavier ball drills that you'll do. So most of the time, it'll range between one to two pounds um, with a plyo ball for that.
0: And I know for, for those listening to this, it's going to be tough to, if you've never heard of the drill before, to wrap your head on on how to actually perform the drill. But I, I was, I'm, I'm looking on your Instagram page right now, and you you have a video of you demonstrating it. So if you are interested in, in actually knowing how to do the drill, I'll put the link to uh, Jared's video in the show notes so you can just click on it and go to his Instagram page where you can see the video and him explain it there too. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things that I've been noticing probably over the past year or two with pitchers is, and I think it might've actually started with Trevor Bauer is um and, and Kelly, who's a, Who's that pitcher for the Dodgers who just got suspended? What's his name? Joe Kelly, Joe Kelly. Joe, I was going to say Chad Kelly, Joe Kelly. <laughs> Is shortening, the ar- shortening your arm action. So that's a thing right now. What do you think of that? Do you agree with that?
1: You know, I think shortening your arm action can be beneficial, but just to shorten your arm action for the sake of shortening it, I don't think it's necessary. It kind of goes back to what I was talking about with the pivot pick. We want to get that arm um, inside 90. And if you can do that with a longer arm action, then that's perfectly fine. And, and really what's going to help dictate that is what your lower body's doing. So if you're creating, you know, a good load and you're giving your arm more time to build up, you can probably get away with a longer arm action. But it's really a case-by-case study on, you know, trying to figure out what's the best arm action for that individual. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of guys make drastic changes. So, you know, just like we were talking about we were in Lima, one of the pitchers we had was Jordan Marks he had a really long arm action when he first got there and he, he got as, as short as Joe Kelly, if not shorter by the end of the summer. And for him that worked because his arm was late and draggy with the longer arm action. So for him, by shortening it up, his arm was able to be on time and then he was able to accelerate out front rather than accelerating, you know, further behind his body and causing more of a drag effect.
0: Do you think that's, it's a, it's also a thing because of, So many guys doing weighted balls now, and that promotes shorter arm action by doing those weighted balls.
1: You know, I I think it promotes it a little bit, but I don't think, I honestly don't think weighted balls in and of themselves change mechanics, you know, without you still having a focus on it. Because, you know, I see, I watch guys all the time. So I go to X2, you mentioned, you know, Luke Haggerty, he owns X2 Performance. I go there a few days a week and help out, and I work out myself there. And you get a new kid in there and he starts throwing weighted balls or you have him, you know, try a drill. He's not going to instantly have a shorter arm action and be more efficient just because he's throwing a weighted ball. So you really have to make that the focus still. Um, but I think that the word has been going around for years that when you're using weighted balls, you, the goal is to try to shorten your arm action, make it more efficient. So I think kids are thinking about that and trying to make that change. So, you know, for me, when I first started using weighted balls, I actually shortened my arm action a little bit. And it wasn't that the weighted the ball made me do it necessarily, but it was easier to get more efficient with it because the ball was heavier.
0: Do you believe that, speaking of, of younger kids and pitchers, what do those kids need to be focusing on? Like, do you believe that they need to be understanding what their feet should be doing first before they worry about anything, what that their arm's doing since everything starts from the ground?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting thing, right? Because uh, I think about this all the time because it does start with, with the feet. It starts from the ground. It starts with your load. But when you think about implementing drills with kids, like, for example, if they do plyo drills and they, you know, they do a, a quote unquote driveline program or some of those drills that they implement, you're never focusing on just one area. Like each drill kind of focuses on a different part of the delivery, which is, you know, that, that, that's the constraint led approach by kind of breaking it down. Um, to different parts of the delivery and really constraining yourself to certain movements. But if I had to start from one spot, it would be with, with the load. The first move we make is, you know, I think critical to setting up everything down the chain after that. So if we don't get the load right, we're really just setting ourselves up um, to be in a bad position at foot strike. So for me, the first thing would be to focus on that load, but there would also be drills we would be working on their arm action if that needed to be a focus as well. Uh,
0: the load, can you... Can you get a little bit more into that? Do you mean like getting into their back hip? I know some people, when they say load, even for hitting, it's still not known because there's so many different interpretations of the load from a hitter's perspective. So from a pitching perspective, what what exactly does the load mean?
1: Right. So for me, I'm considering the load from the second your lead leg starts to leave the ground. Okay. So if you're left-handed, that would be your right leg coming up. Your right hand would be your left leg coming up. So the second that starts to come up, that's when I consider the load starting. And for me, the the load ends, you know, somewhere in the stride phase. So before your front foot hits the ground, um, but so somewhere in that middle ground of in between the rubber and in between where your foot is landing, that's what I consider the load. So we want to do a couple of things there. The first thing is we want to get some sort of momentum going towards home, right? So if we just stay over the rubber too long, I have no momentum created going down the mound, and I'm going to have to make up for that later in the delivery. So that, that's why this is kind of a side note, but that's why you'll see some kids, when they do pull-downs, they throw 8 to 10 miles an hour harder than when they do off the mound because they're relying on that momentum that they're creating with the pull-down. So although we can't create that exact same momentum, we can still create some sort of momentum. And, you know, one term that I, that I like that Ben Brewster from Tread Athletics actually came up with is the drift. That's kind of what he, he talks about a lot. And what that is, is once my foot starts to come off the ground, I have a little bit of my weight leaning towards my target that just automatically gets my weight going towards home. So I'm not actually thinking about, okay, my leg's coming up, I need to push aggressively towards home, but allowing gravity to kind of help get your weight going towards your target. Um, So once we do that, after we initially get the foot off the ground and we start going towards our target, we really want to think about hinging and loading into the back leg. So for those of you that are trying to think about what a hinge is, uh, think about the deadlift exercise. It's not a full squat position, um, but it's not also a straight leg position where my butt's just going straight back. It's somewhere in that middle ground where I have a slight bend, but my hips are being pushed back behind me. So that's the type of feeling we want to get in our back leg. because That's going to really load up our glute um, and the whole posterior chain in the back leg. And then once I do that, it's going to allow me to unwind into foot plant a little bit easier, and then everything is going to have a ripple effect from there, um, leading to the next segment of the delivery.
0: So how how long do you want your back heel to be on the right? Remain on the rubber floor, like intact. And the only reason I ask that is because I in hitting, you the second that back heel comes off the ground, like if that back heel comes off too early, you've you've lost a lot of energy into your swing potentially and you're not, a, you're not going to be in a position of, of a, being able to adjust to certain pitches. So for pitching, do you want to keep that back heel intact for as long as possible on the rubber?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that's another thing that's talked about quite a bit is that heel connection to the ground.
0: Because if I can
1: keep my heel on the ground, then I'm going to stay in my glute a little bit longer. And you'll see some guys, especially guys that throw across their body, a lot of times they'll get to their toe – their, their, w- their weight to their toe a little bit too soon, and it kind of just forces their weight um, towards uh, third base if they're right-handed, first base if they're left-handed, and it really you know starts to throw off their alignment a little bit. And now they're transferring the focus to their quad, and most of those guys become more push dominant. So what I mean by that is they start to push off their toe towards their target. And a lot of times they have to do that to compensate for the fact that they're drifting you know offline from their target. So you know. That's a good question on, you know, how long do you actually keep the heel in in contact with the rubber? I don't know if I have an exact answer for that, uh, but I would say most guys could benefit from having the focus of keeping it in the ground as long as they can. Because once your hips start rotating, it's naturally going to come off. Um, So just trying to figure out what works for that specific athlete is really critical. You know, for one guy telling them, keep your heel in the ground as long as you can might work for another guy. It might not work. So it's really just kind of experimenting and, and making sure that, you know, their hips are still rotating on time. Um, You don't want them to get stuck in that back hip and then everything's kind of rotating a little bit late.
0: On the follow through, I've been seeing some things of, of recoils, you know, and there's so many things. This is the problem with social media sometimes where you see so many different opinions. You don't even know like what exactly to believe because then you go watch a video of certain hitter or a certain pitcher, sorry. And you see them do both things. So it, when I watch certain pitchers, sometimes I see them take a – I th- throw the ball and then their arm come back up again, mm-hmm. and then I see some who throw it and then their arm stays down. What, I, right. what's, what's the answer? Like, what, what should be we be telling younger pitchers coming up the chain?
1: I personally am not going to tell a guy to do it or not to do it. For me, it's it should just kind of be a byproduct of of your throw. Some people, you know, they naturally do that, and I would say it's probably guys that have really high um, intent when they throw like it's kind of just like a reaction type thing like i've done that a few times when i'm trying to throw as hard as i can so you know i don't want to tell someone to you know artificially do that like if it happens it happens Um, but i also don't want to tell someone okay you need to finish with your arm down in a perfect ceiling position because what that's going to do is it's going to kill rotation and it's going to kill their intent to actually throw the ball hard so you know just just throw the ball with intent towards your target and whatever happens after you release the ball happen.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up for for me anyway. I'm sure other people listening too. You now you pitched in college, uh, George Mason, I know before that you were at um junior college, and then you played professionally too in some really good independent leagues. So you know all about uh the pitcher versus batter confrontation and just matchup and competing with with against hitters. When you're on the mound, how, how do you go about game planning for hitters as a pitcher?
1: Yeah, so I think this is going to differ from level to level, right? Like with, if you're in a pro organization, you're going to have access to in-depth scouting reports. You're going to have heat maps. You're going to be able to when
0: Let's when say when you were in college, when you were pitching in college.
1: When I was in college, the first thing I would do is I would look at the stat sheet of, of every hitter on their team. And the main things I was looking at was uh, strikeouts. How many times did they strike out? How many times did they walk? And then I would also look at their power numbers. So I wanted to see the type of hitter I was going to be facing. So I was facing a guy that, you know, hit for a lot of power, struck out a lot, and didn't walk a lot. And I knew he was going to be, you know, a free swinger type guy um, who had a lot of juice. So he's probably going to be a guy I was going to feed soft stuff. I wasn't a hard thrower, so I, I had to finesse. Really, with most hitters, I had to finesse. But um, with a guy like that specifically, if I could feel they were aggressive by looking at the stat sheet, I would probably start them off with an off-speed pitch and just kind of see how they reacted. You can get a good idea for how a hitter is going to react just even by the takes they have. You know, a lot of guys, you know, maybe they're a lead off guy. I faced a guy who, you know, was going to take that first pitch no matter what. And it'd be a very passive looking take. And I knew, okay, this guy isn't really aggressive right now. I'm going to keep attacking until he shows me something different. Then there'll be other guys where it looks like they're going to swing almost every single pitch. And they're, they have a very aggressive take, a lot of movement going on. Uh, those are just little things you can kind of pick up on and and really it starts with the stat sheet like I said guys that are more passive are probably going to walk a lot more guys who aren't walking a lot that tells me that they're going to swing the bat.
0: so you're on the mound you're you're normally starting guys off with off speed which it seems contrary to what other pitching coaches would say to promote is throw you know mix and start, start everything off with the fastball and build off of that. But that was based off of just the fact that you didn't throw very hard as a pitcher. Correct. Right.
1: Yeah. And well, the other thing too though, is that you'll look at even guys in the big leagues now that throw 96, 97 and they're throwing more off speed than fastballs. So, you know, for the most part, even if you throw hard, your fastball is not going to be your best swing and miss pitch. So, and that doesn't mean we don't throw the pitch, right? Like we need it to set up other pitches still, But the thought of, okay, I need to start off with my fastball and establish that, I think that's kind of being debunked by, you know, the success that big leaders are having, and us being able to look at the numbers and see that, hey, your off-speed pitches are actually producing better results than your fastball.
0: So the top hitters in the lineup, you would start them off with an off-speed pitch, see how they would react. But I would assume you wouldn't do that with every single hitter. Because then they, over time, especially with scouting, they know, oh, well, Jared's going to start, start everyone off with an off-speed pitch, so just be ready or just take it. So did you just, was it always like the big dogs of the lineup, you would consistently do the off-speed, and then the lower in the lineup you got, you would try and sneak some fastballs by early on?
1: Yeah, it would, it would depend. You know, my shoot from college to if I was still playing now, I'm sure my mindset would probably be a lot different considering that was seven, eight years ago. Um, but like I said, it was mainly the guys that were really aggressive that the first time through I would start off with off-speed. If they were passive or just like an average hitter and there was no one on base, like the, who's on base is going to determine what you're going to do as well. Um, but I, I would try to throw fastballs early on. If I could save an off-speed pitch, I would. Um, but I wasn't going to let the fact that, oh, it's only the first inning, let me not throw an off-speed pitch, especially if there's a runner in scoring position. You get a guy in scoring position, you need to throw your best stuff and try to get that guy out.
0: Why don't more guys throw inside consistently? You see that at younger levels, even, you know, high school and even a little bit in college too. They don't, they don't throw inside. Why is that?
1: At the younger levels, my thought would be, number one, they might be afraid of hitting the batter, which as you get older, you need to start to realize that you hit them, you hit them. If I hit him with a fastball, that's fine. Like, I, I don't want them to be comfortable in there. But I think that is one thing. I think I felt that a little bit when I was younger. I didn't want to hit a kid, especially when I was in like junior high, high school age. Um, and then also, I feel like at the lower levels, kids really just aren't good at hitting outside pitches. And, and then when you throw on top of that, then an umpire will give you a call that's a foot off the plate. Then, <laughs> like, what's stopping you from throwing it outside? That's a tough pitch to hit, right? And then as you get older and you start to deal with you know, guys that have some pretty good juice that are some bigger guys, a lot of those guys actually like the ball middle away. So you kind of have to adjust as you get older. But I think learning to establish the inside corner at a younger age is only going to benefit you going forward.
0: With Soto and some of the newer technologies, um, speaking of younger levels, you see even kids using using that stuff now and with pitch tunneling and just the way the game is going. At what age would do you think kids need to be worried about pitch tunneling and and how their their ball is looking to hitters. I mean, is that something that happens later on, or does it happen naturally, or does every kid listening to this need to go buy a wrap soda who's fourteen years old and start working on pitch tunneling?
1: No, I, I think at the high school age, if you have access to one, that's great. But I don't think it's necessary. That's one of the benefits of like bringing up X two again. But they they have a wrap soda, which you know, if you go to a facility and they have one awesome. Like, I, I don't see any harm in throwing on it. I wouldn't hyper focus on it if you're a teenager, honestly, if you're in that, like, freshman, sophomore age. Maybe as you get closer to a senior, it might become more important when you're trying to sell yourself to a college program. Uh, but I would really say, for most guys, the college level would be, you know, where you need to take that focus. Um, but I think it it really starts, you know, with Are my my mechanics where I want them to be? Am I throwing at the velocity that I want to have? Like, I I think those are two of the more important things to worry about early on before we start worrying about, am I tunneling my pitch right? Or, you know, what is my, my vertical break numbers and, and all that. I, I think that's kind of a later process for a younger kid. I think a younger kid just needs to learn how to throw, throw right, work on throwing harder. And yeah, and we might start working on developing a breaking ball, but I don't think you need a route to a young age. Let's just learn how to spin the ball um, and, and kind of go from there. But to answer your question, at the earliest where I would say it's absolutely necessary would be if you're a junior or senior and a school actually wants to see your data on you know what your pitches look like. And then really college levels where you can take that next step and making that a priority in your bullpen.
0: And how would you go about – improving improving that like say they are a junior or senior and they they don't do a good job right now tunneling their pitches how, how do you go about improving that
1: well you're gonna need a camera uh, which you can even use your iphone to do this slow-mo iphone set up behind behind you for your release that would really take it to the next level but even just looking at your pitch plot on the um, you need to figure out what your fastball does, right? So there's there's kind of three terms that you'll hear nowadays, like a guy has a carry fastball, he has average movement fastball, or he has a sinker. So everyone knows what a sinker is. Uh, carry fastball, everyone listening might not know what that means, but those are the guys that throw a true, you know, forcing fastball, usually closer to, you know, that 12 to 12.30 spin axis. So it's pretty much rotating straight back and it just kind of just seems like it stays up a little bit longer than normal. Uh, That would be considered a carry fastball. And then that average fastball rank is going to be in that range where it's, you know, it's it's average. It might have a little bit of tail or a little bit of sink, but it's really just in that typical range of what you would see day in and day out. So that would be the first thing. You got to figure out what your fastball does to know what your off speed needs to do off of that. So I don't look at pitches individually to say, you know, that's a good pitch or that's a bad pitch. It's all in relation to what your other pitches are doing, specifically what your fastball is doing. So, you know, guys that are carry fastball guys, they're probably going to be, you know, more, they're going to be, they're going to benefit more from throwing more of a 12-6 type breaking ball because it's going to have similar spin just in the opposite direction. If you're a sinker guy, you're probably going to be paired with a slider better. So you can even simplify it to that. If I have a carry fastball, let's work on a 12-6. If I throw a sinker, let's try to get a slider that has more horizontal type movement.
0: That's probably the best I've ever heard it explained in, in the most simplistic manner right there. So I just thank you for doing that. Just because <laughs> I, I, don't know, I mean, seriously, because again, <laughs> it, we had, there's a lot of stuff on online and it's, it's confusing for a lot of people. So the, anytime we could take something complicated and make it simple, that's incredible. And it shows how good of a, a coach and how good, how much you understand what you're you, you are talking about. So thank you for doing that. Um, that was a great segment right there on, how to actually tunnel pitches so I don't have to uh, make up stuff anymore when people ask me. So thank you. (laughs) Um, I know before we started recording, I I jotted a a few notes down and told you a few things we could talk about. And uh, you asked me when I brought up, why don't more pitchers grunt? Because I've read this, I've read certain things that say if a pitcher grunts, it adds an extra two to three miles an hour. So as a non-pitching guy, my thought process is you should be grunting so everyone can hear you after every single pitch.
1: Yeah, I, I can't speak to the validity of the two to three miles an hour. Um, I don't doubt that it that it helps. Um, but if you're throwing 82, 83 miles an hour and you're grunting, you're probably going to be given a hard time from the opposing team or even your own <laughs> teammates. So. <laughs> And, you know, if, if you're really, if you're only going from 82, 83 to 85, 86, I don't know how much of a difference it's really making, but to, to counter that, if it actually, you know, improves velocity or improves power, why don't hitters do it?
0: Um, I, well, I, that's the thing is the study that I saw <laughs> had nothing to do with hitting. It was all throwing. Okay.
1: Well, we might have to do a study on hitters and see if they all right. I'll it. do that
0: study. I got, I got a <laughs> facility now. We'll do, we'll do the study. All right. Um, Awesome. And this has been great. Um, it's always good to catch up with you. I'm glad you're doing re- really well. Congrats on it. You're getting married, um, which is crazy to, to think about how old we're we're getting. Not old. We're not even 30 yet, but we're getting up there. But congrats on that. And I know you're doing some remote training right now, something that you've been doing even back when we first met a few years ago. And you do a really good job with that. Give us, give us the inside scoop on, on what this entails, because there's, there's so many different programs and training methods out there and people trying to just sell you stuff. And I've mentioned this several times in this podcast. It's hard to know unless you're an expert who's who and what you should be listening to and who shouldn't you be listening to. And I know you have my vote on someone that you should definitely be listening to because you know what you're doing clearly just by some of the answers you've given in this podcast, but also just because I know know you. So. Why? Why should someone invest in remote training, and, and how can it help them? And how can GSP, your company, help them?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question because you know remote training. People that aren't familiar with it, they hear remote training and it sounds a little weird to them. Especially if you're a high school kid, and you're trying to sell it to your parents that hey, there's this guy on Instagram that does online training. Yeah. He wants he wants to sign me up for you know, for just a small fee a month. I mean, if I'm a parent, I'm probably thinking, okay, I need to figure out who this is, what the company is, and do research. So that's really my first process, or first step, if I'm working with a kid, is I want to get on the phone with their parents, and I want them to get to know me, understand what I do, my background, and and really just get to know them a little bit, because I, I can understand as a parent that there has to be a little bit of doubt on, you know, what's going on, and just like you said, you know, understanding and trying to figure out who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. So to give a quick rundown on it, uh, remote training, for those that don't know, is it's the same benefits of, you know, personal training and, you know, a throwing coach, but everything is done online. So you're able to do everything from your own gym, from your own field, uh, wherever you do your workouts, you do it there. And what I do is I send you your program online, Um, I use the software Track by Driveline now, which is a great scheduling tool and a way for me to track your throwing, um, your lifting schedule, and it also inputs the data on your throwing velocities and how much weight you are lifting um, for each exercise. And over time, we'll be able to see your progress uh, on your list and also on your throwing velocity, which is really cool. Um, You get to see a a breakdown on a graph. And uh, they also now have incorporated into Track uh, a thing called Pitch AI which is a biomechanics report, which is really cool. All, all I have to have you do is film yourself in slow motion from a side view, and it generates a biomechanics report for you, which it, when you look at it, if you've never seen one before, you're, just, you're wondering what all these lines are and what they mean. And what I do for you is I really break it down, keep it simple, and try to highlight to you the deficiencies in your delivery that we need to work on. And then based on that, um, we, I program drills and exercises to help you with that, And um, that's really the the main part of it is I start off with an assessment. Every client does a movement assessment and a strength assessment. Then you also send me video, like I said, of you throwing. And what you'll have to do is video yourself doing these assessments and send them back to me so I can look at it. And then after that, I'll get on the phone with you and your parents if they'd like to be on it. And I really go through your assessment and tell you what I think you do really well and some areas that I think we can improve and what we would really focus on in your training. And then after that, I build out a training program for you built into four-week phases. So every four weeks, um, you get an updated version of your lifting and your throwing uh, based on the time of year and then also based on how you progressed last month. So it's, it's not a cookie-cutter program. Um, I know a lot of people you know, will sell, you know, they do individualized programs, but this really is an individualized program based on you know, your assessment and, and really what your needs are. And that's, that's really the most important thing. Like I, I could roll out the same program for, you know, every client and it save me a lot of time, but I know that you're not going to get the best product and that's not going to treat you the best. So I, uh, I really take the time to, to give you the program that's built for you. And that, that's the process that I follow. And, you know, in every uh, two to three months we do another assessment to see where you're at, reevaluate and um, we go from there.
0: And the only thing I, I would want to add on top of that is, um, your, your time is, is limited. I know you said you are only taking so many, so many clients. So if you, if you do listen to this and say like, well, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. Um, you're, you're, you are only taking so many clients. Um, I know you mentioned that before we started recording. So make sure to act on it uh, quickly. And then what's the, the best way for someone to get in contact with you? Um, maybe just, maybe just one, one place. I think we've people like me just keeping it simple.
1: Yeah, I would say, man, I don't like to get blown up with DMs, but Instagram would be probably easiest to reach me. And then maybe you can just add my email address in the show notes. Okay, what's your Instagram? Instagram is gsp underscore training.
0: Okay, we'll put that on the link too, but in case anyone just listening wants to go check it out. Jared, uh, pleasure as always. Stay cool out there in Arizona. Stay safe too. I know there's my brother lives out there, so know they've had some, a lot of fires and stuff too, so. And then glad you're doing well, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Pat. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.